Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Diana Malencio. She's a partner at XRC Labs. Some companies that have worked with XRC Labs include um, Modern Retail Podcast alums like Outlines and Kara. I want to talk about how XRC works, her investment uh, thesis, how she thinks about investing in funds. And also, I know that XRC and Diana think about investing in underrepresented communities, which is something that uh, I try to think about as a reporter, um, given that we write about a lot of brands. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. But Diana, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you end up at XRC? What were you doing before? Yeah, so I um, started my career in traditional finance, growth equity, public markets, and I started a couple of companies. And that's actually how I got involved with XRC. I was part of XRC's first cohort um, with my company, Quinn. Um, from there, I left that company to join Venture Capital Land, um, went to Wise Ventures, um, spent a few years there before joining XRC in the spring of 2021. And I've been there since. What kind of company was Quinn? Quinn was a last mile logistics platform for multi-brand retailers. Um, In layman's terms, it was on-demand delivery. Got it. Got it. And so you've always, with that, you've been thinking about the retail space, but uh, that was much more of a back-end thing than a front-facing thing. Exactly right. Yes. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about XRC just from a zoomed out view? Because it's both, uh, you both invest, but it's also an accelerator. How, How does it all work? How did it start? What's the history of it? Yeah, so XRC was founded in 2015 by our founding partner, Pano Anthos. And it was his his vision at that time was really that retail needed to be disrupted. Um, his thesis was that there was far too much retail square footage out there. And we really needed to, or retailers needed to innovate and meet the customer wherever they were. Um, so XRC invests out of three funds currently. The first is our Legacy Accelerator, which started in 2015. It runs two programs a year, um, and it focuses on everything from how to communicate your business to enterprise companies to how to do a proper fundraise. And then our two subsequent funds, the XRC Opportunity Fund, um, I'll start with that, is a seed to series A venture fund um, where potentially graduates from the accelerator can receive follow-on investing, or we invest in external companies um, where we might have missed them at the accelerator stage and they're you know, revenue generating and they're ready for scale. And then most recently we launched um, the XRC Brand Capital Fund, which focuses on consumer products. Got it. And you specifically are involved with all three funds? Currently, yes. Um, so it's very Seems like a lot thinking very, about many things. It's very busy, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we are very vertically specific. We only invest in retailing consumer. And frankly, um, the investment partners have focused their entire careers in retailing consumer. Even when I was working on Wall Street, my focus has always been on consumer and and retail. I wanted to ask you, because uh, you said the thesis in 2015 with XRC was that there was too much retail square footage. I think that's a statement that you could problematize now, or I feel like people are 
talking more about in-store than they definitely were back then. What Do you think that still holds? How, how do you think about that thesis? Yes, that still holds. Um, there's still <laughs> far, far too much. All you have to do is go to your neighborhood mall. Um, and if you're in, you know, if you're in New York City, go to New Jersey, go to um, go to Connecticut. Um, and you will see that if you go on regular business hours during a weekday, there's not a lot of people shopping there. On weekends, you might see like a, a little bit of a, of a pygmy up. But one of the ways in which I think retailers and mall owners are thinking through that problem, because it continues to be one, is by creating now experiences um, and services uh, in store, and then different ways that they could use the back of the store, for example. So that's everything from um, in-store pickup to um, like rentals and rental pickups. Um, Home Depot does a really great job of that um, to creating these events that bring people in with the goal of hopefully reminding them how great it is to shop in-store. and as as well as um, you know, picking up some sales along the way with these um, experiential events. You mentioned this um, a little bit earlier, but I wanted you to go a little bit deeper, just so our listeners know. But if you're in a part of the accelerator, what is the overall process? So you mentioned that it helps refine the pitch. You know, all of the, so how how does it all work, and how would you describe the the date is it today for um, accelerator portfolio companies? Yeah, so I'll start with the beginning, which is how to apply. Um, so we have, uh, we do have a rolling application where we look at every single applicant that comes through our submission form, which is on our website, xrclabs.com. Um, but then we, um, throughout the year, we have like application sprints, which we are in the midst of to identify, you know, who will be in our next cohort, which I think starts in end of February, um, early, early March, so it's really structured in um, in three different parts. The first is foundational um, education. So how do you communicate your business? Um, what are the metrics? What does success at the end of the accelerator looks like, look like? Um, the second stage is on execution. So execution against the metrics and goals that we that we set up. Um, we also pair you with mentors in the beginning. And then the end is very focused on, okay, let's let's make some of those goals happen. At the end is when we make typically like the, the introductions that we discussed at the very beginning. At the end is really where we talked about, um, you know, we talked about these, this is what you need to fundraise, but the end is really when we sort of turn on the, the fundraising gear so the first, again, is establishing a foundation. The second is execution. And the third is, okay, let's really help accelerate. Are there general themes to each cohort? Or do you find that you're looking for something specific for each one? And just more extensive of that beyond the accelerator. What are you looking for right now in companies? It's great. You might have to remind me of all the different questions. Yes, but sorry. I, would say, I, I ask multiple questions at once. No, I it's okay. I, I would say it it it, it varies. Um, Often we have, we think through as partners, we have thesis, theses around um, where we believe the world of retail and consumer is going to go five years out. So some of those include, you know, to, to our earlier um, conversations about underrepresented communities. There's still a lot of white space there, which with regards to consumer products, 
um, for example, for the BIPOC communities, for LGBTQ communities. Um, and we've been investing against that for the past, you know, handful or so um, cohorts. Um, we still believe that there's efficiencies to be made in supply chain and logistics. Um, and then we believe, um, and as more recently, both out of the accelerator and the opportunity fund, um, that the consumerization of healthcare will continue, meaning the shift from, um, so healthcare you would normally think of as part of retail and consumer, but what's interesting and what the pandemic has really accelerated is this move from the doctor's office in terms of um, diagnosis, um, monitoring and recovery has shifted a lot from the, the doctor's office to people's homes. They are taking a lot of ownership in their healthcare and they are actively, proactively looking at how to receive that care, that monitoring in the convenience of their own home. And so to that extent, um, we've been actively investing in consumer healthcare for the past few years. And I think this cohort from you know, me looking at my pipeline is shaping up to be, um, there's a high concentration of um, consumer healthcare companies. I think you're totally right that it's shifted the idea with healthcare into consumer and retail. And I think, I mean, tell me if you agree. I think like early companies like Hims that were doing OTC stuff were sort of the forefront of that. Like they they created a mind shift where people were like, oh, you're 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 selling these prescriptions or these supplements, but also you're a healthcare company, but also I can order them from my home. Yes, that's right. I mean, that's a separate conversation on 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 yeah. and hers <laughs> around like yeah. how those products have largely become commoditized, um, yeah. which is a sign that there's been great adoption um, to using those those platforms. But but yes, we've for example invested in a company called MD Integrations, and that that is that that platform is just a service that provides doctors to the hymns and hers and legacies of the world. So it provides. Um, asynchronous doctor care. So you could press a button um, and you can, you can speak with, uh, you could speak with a doctor leveraging the, those platforms. You, MD is not consumer facing. It's, it is a product specifically for those type of delivery models. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, since you mentioned the underrepresented community parts is like, how do you, like, one of the things that I think about a lot as a reporter is so much of that is like figuring out how to target different audiences comes back to like confirmation bias and what people, you know, what people in the investing room know and are comfortable with. How do you go beyond that in terms of who is like who you're targeting that resonates with the community, all that? How do you approach that? So in our consumer fund, for for example, yeah. um, we'll we'll start we'll start with that. If you look at the shelves of Target and um Walmart. What you'll see is, by and large, um, products that are promoted to and made for um, non-BIPOC audiences. But if you strip away, like who are the largest consumers of beauty, for example, it's it's African American women. Um, and even though those products have is ex exists. Um, for example, in beauty supply stores, there is still a gap for that in traditional mass market retail. Similarly, um, we invested in a company called Barb, which is a hair care product line for folks with short hair. 
meaning women or excuse me, folks um, who have short hair that don't feel maybe at home in a barbershop that don't feel at home in a salon where I go because I have really long hair um, or a traditional hairstyle to um, to women. Um, they've really created products with their audience in mind. And I don't think a big company like Tresemme, for example, can just come out with like an LGBTQ um, hair care product line and it feels authentic. Um, it, it it won't. And so we think those are those are big opportunities. Those are growing populations that are demanding more out of their out of these um, consumer brands or large conglomerates. And um, we believe in that too. And that's why we're we've been investing in them for for the past few cohorts um, and in our um, in our other funds. You mentioned beauty products with the BIPOC community. Are there any other areas that you think there is huge white space that you're specifically looking for or that you think there is a lot of room for growth in terms of consumer facing products? Yes, I'm trying to think where to start because there's so so many areas. <laughs> um, so another area that I'm really bullish on is actually men's. Um, so if you if you think about um, like men's skincare, men's hair care is has largely um, I think been a, addressed, but like men's skincare is is an emerging category that I'm I'm really bullish on. We've invested in a company called Strix. They they do really really well. Um, they do more like functional cosmetics. So they have like a concealer pen where, you know, if you have a pimple the day of your wedding, you can just go boop and you won't feel weird about asking your sister or your future wife or like, <laughs> hey, can you can you loan me your concealer? Um, so there's so men's um, grooming is a category I'm really bullish on VMS, which is an acronym for vitamins, minerals and supplements. Um, there is this. Um, we now know that, that vitamins are, are, are great for you, but a lot of people don't like to consume a, a pill. So I've been really interested and have been digging in for the past year on new forms of VMS, whether that's like a Listerine strip that gives you vitamins or gives you caffeine to perk you up, or it's a mint, it's a gum, or it's a chocolate, or maybe it's a patch. Um, so different forms of VMS has seen um, low double-digit growth, which is very high. Um, so that's an area, women's health. Um, there's not really been, a, there's lots of, there's been lots of investments in menopause, but there hasn't been like a real winner from my perspective in terms of um, a brand that people can, you know, just just say that oh oh you mean that menopause company people don't have that it's not as ubiquitous as like the razor for example um there's more i can keep going no uh, i love that i mean <laughs> i would say what's interesting is that like with the menopause one i i i think that there's a lot of opportunity at least in my understanding with like age things so like i think so many consumer facing companies focus specifically on like my demographic of like 25 to 40 years yes. old or whatever. And so I'm always interested to hear what's going on for, you know, younger, obviously older, definitely. And sort of, I would love to hear about how marketing works for that, because that'd be such a different marketing schema than than what we know and see in New York City every day, you know? Yeah, we call that silver tech. Um, <laughs> silver tech? Wait, really? Yes, silver tech. I love that. I probably should know that just, but I've never heard that before. <laughs> oh, great, great. I'm glad I introduced something new. <laughs> um, and it is interesting because if you think about women over 40, women over 50, they are 
that they are a demographic that has some of the highest purchasing power in the world, in the country. Um, you know, they're at a stage in their career where they have a lot of disposable income. And there is there's very few brands that try to directly speak with them. Instead, they're all trying to capture the Gen Z audience that they have yeah. not yet captured with their legacy brands. So that's actually in, you know, I, 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 I often and regularly um, see, speak with um, executives in this potential uh, that are potential acquirers of these brands. And they're all trying to hunt down the next Gen Z brand, but I think they're really missing out on this population that's largely been ignored by beauty, by vitamins, um, by VMS, um, by tech. Um, and so we haven't really made a bet in that space yet, but I am actively looking to do so. I'm trying to think, are there any good examples you have of like really good silver tech companies out there? It sounds like you haven't made any investments yet, but are you still just waiting to find the, the perfect one? I'm still looking to find the perfect one. And there's there's different ways you can go about it. There's the education component, which we um, have invested in 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 the past, um, wherein you have because when when you it's not a to- it's not a topic, even though it happens to half of the population, menopause is not a topic that well, I, I, my my parent my mom that has not discussed what it's like to go through menopause. Nor do women necessarily um, before you reach that stage discuss what it's like and it's going to impact all of us in you know in, in a certain amount of time some some women younger than others um so there's the education component there's the skincare component because there are things that happen to your body um excessive dryness in certain areas dryness of um of your your face so there there are some skincare companies i'm starting to see that are targeted that are specifically targeting that demographic because they're the needs of that perimenopausal or monopausal women is different from, you know, women that are in their teens that are looking to clear up acne. Um, And then there are nutrition and vitamin deficits as a woman going through menopause. There's also acute um, things that you're trying to solve for like um, hot flashes. Um, And so there's, we're looking at the at the breadth of the different applications and what startups are out there. Um, We haven't made a bet yet. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I wanted to ask you, like, as you're looking at, or you you look at companies of all sizes, it sounds like with the accelerator early with the other funds, you know, mid range, what are the fundamentals that you're thinking about as an investor right now in terms of growth? Because I feel like things have changed a lot in terms of what it means to be a successful consumer facing brand this year compared to a few years ago, compared to five years ago. So what are you thinking about when you're looking at a pitch about what is viable? Yes. So as a venture capitalist, you when you're thinking about actively investing, you also think a little bit about, okay, but what does the next round look like? Because as VC funds, we're judged on what's called markups, or maybe if you're not focused on the next markup of your fund, which I think every partner is, yeah. <laughs> um, then you're, you're focused on, okay, what is the time to exit? And what does that exit look like? What are those exit multiples look like? Um, and in this kind of environment where it's really, really hard to get venture capital and um, customer acquisition costs have gone up, 
what you what we look for and this is metrics wise because founders are is always by the way the the number one thing but secondly it's around how these brands are acquiring customers organically i think most if not all vcs these days unless there's unless there's ip there's like a scientific breakthrough um, are really looking for founders that understand how to drive organic sales where the majority of their sales are based on content that they produce themselves. And if I look at the the investment that we just made um, in the brand capital fund, a company called SoloWave, and the three companies that we have in the pipeline for the consumer fund, all of them are excellent at driving organic growth, um, which is really important because I don't think any VC these days really wants to invest in a business plan in front of them that says, I'm going to use nearly all of your capital on Facebook and Instagram ads. Like they should understand how to speak to their audience because they're the founders. They sleep about it, dream about it, right? And so they should understand intuitively what works um, and then are just spending to accelerate what already works. Again, a great example is... um, I think our our company Strix drives like 80 to 90% of their revenue from TikTok and Instagram. And so do the founders of these brands have that capability in-house or do they have to hire out for it, which is very expensive. So actually, that's a question I have because, yeah, every brand is looking for organic growth. And our, but organic growth, more often than not, as with Strix, happens online with, yes, that's um, right. with TikTok. Yes, that's right. But what happened... Uh, what happens if the TikTok algorithm, God forbid, changes and then Strix or like and their organic growth? You know, like it seems like how do you look to make sure that there are multiple channels by by which they are resonating with people? Or is it just, you know, that they are resonating with people and that's good enough for you as an investor? Yeah. So sometimes um, there are brands that maybe through the history of the founders being at a large um, CPG company inherently go to go to retail first and they're growing that way through the number of doors. It's, it's more like what are the um, visible calculatable signals that there is consumer interest typically in direct consumer brands, because it's really to prop up a, it's really easy to prop up a, a, a brand. I could, you know, use stock photos or hire a graphic designer to mock up a um, the newest sunscreen Put put up a Shopify site and start start my my pre order. So, and then start posting things on Instagram as as me myself. And so that's mm-hmm. why most direct consumer brands really start there because of because it's easy. It's really hard actually to to get um, to get into retail. It requires certain materials. It requires a certain number of SKUs. And then even if say for example Sephora or Target wanted you, it requires investment dollars because mm-hmm. it costs money to shelve your your products and potentially ideally participate in the marketing programs that retailers charge the startups. Um, so I think it's perfectly fine to be in wholesale first. first. It's just typically harder. How does, if you have a company that pitches you and they Th- wholesale is part of their their frame of reference. Uh, 
how how does that fit into the XRC thesis of retail spaces are you know are, are there's too many like do you like do, is it it's okay that if you have a company that's ninety percent wholesale that would still be acceptable to you guys as a portfolio company? Yeah, so I would say when we talk retail, we're really mostly speaking about like apparel and accessories. Yeah. Um, so the, I'm trying to think if I can go from macro to micro, but but effectively there's this continuing to widen wealth gap. Um, mm-hmm. And we believe that um, attainable luxuries like beauty will continue to do well, whereas other areas like apparel will be challenging. Um, so if you look at the efficiency of the Sephora's, the Ulta's of the world, the beauty aisles of mass market retail, we believe that those are still highly efficient versus um the, you know the the makeup counters at malls you'll see a jam packed sephora wherever you go but you go to you know the makeup counter at a macy's and there's it's crickets um and so i think that there's a difference depending depending on the category you mentioned earlier that the number one criterion for you um or for xrc is founders um uh I apologize that this is a very broad question, uh, and I always just try to ask VCs this. But like, do you have a rubric, or like, how how do you do? How do you say this this founder team is good and this one isn't? Is it a je ne sais quoi, or do you actually have certain things that you're like, they have this, they have that, they have that? Yeah. So most of it is je ne sais quoi. Um, by and large, it's um, do they understand inherently how to speak to their customers? So if it's a menopause company. Um, you know, do they have someone on their team that's actually gone through menopause? I have mm-hmm. seen brands that have started by business school people that saw, yeah. you know, that saw like the, um, there's this great white space in menopause and I'm going to start it and I'm a straight white man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not sure they can have, speak directly to that audience. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and they don't have anyone on the team that's gone through menopause and there are <laughs> nuances to how to speak to those women, how to reach those women that maybe he can teach himself, but he will never truly understand. So some of it is like, do they understand that? And then do they have someone on the team? And this is where it's more of like a check mark for me. Do they have someone on the team that can create content or can help with, with, with sales? So in, in a consumer product, um, it's someone that understands typically social media, head of growth, head of social media, a CMO, whatever it is. On the tech side, you know, ideally we're looking for someone with that can crank on code on a daily basis so that you could take customer feedback that you get, mm-hmm. you know, from a from a phone call with, with a CEO and then translate it into a product iteration with the chief product officer or the or the CTO. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted to zoom out a little bit just because, uh, especially we're we're in an interesting time economically, and you're you're in an interesting place uh, as a VC. So, how hard do you think the next year is going to be for consumer facing brands? Just you mentioned that it's harder to raise money. What do you like? What do you think is going to happen? Is there going to be more consolidation on the horizon? Like, what 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 do you think is going to be the realities for brands for the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm seeing it myself and with my conversations with my other VC friends, that's going to be really, really hard to fundraise. They will ask of 
higher and higher hurdle rates to get to funding. Um, and it will be more and more expensive to grow your company on social media. So it'll just be hard. I mean, I don't, I, it will be much harder than it was, um, you know, seven years ago. It will be much, much harder. Um, that said, there is still room for white space. And if you've got in-house ability to grow your audience, then that that I think will be key. Because even if you were able to raise capital, you need to basically raise capital on an, on an annual basis. Um, there are solutions and workarounds, especially specific to um, inventory buys. Um, with inventory capital being based um, based on on revenue and purchase orders, so there's there's that aspect of it, but it won't solve your um, your 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 CAC problem, which is that you just need to continue to produce content, test against it, double down on what's working. In terms of companies and you know their their financial sheets that you're looking at, what are you thinking about? Because I feel like you know you mentioned how you're focused on organic growth, and that's very smart. It makes a lot of sense. A couple of years ago, you could say that my customer acquisition cost was fifty cents, or you know, like really cheap, and I feel like that would catch people's eyes. And now I think profitability and sustainability is much more important for brands. Can you talk a little about that from your perspective on the other side of the table? Yeah. So the first thing is that um, you should be profitable on your first sale. Um, not a lot of people are, um, well, a lot of people are, but I'm still seeing some companies, um, decks that show, you know, no, 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 it, it costs us this much to acquire the customer, but we're not profitable until we make the second, um, sale, which is interesting because a good repeat purchase metric is over 30%. So if only, 30%, let's say like, let's give you the benefit of the doubt, 50% of your, your customers are buying um, your, your product again, then that means you're only profitable with 50% of your sales. So I think it's less of a function of 50 cents versus a hundred, because if you're, for example, with solo wave, where I sit on the board, if your customer acquisition cost is $20, that's still great on a product that's 150 um with very high margins versus you know a $30 sunscreen that costs you you know $35 to acquire that that customer so it's more of a ratio than it is a specific 50 cents um etc i think what we want to see is probably you know customer acquisition costs above three so for every dollar or or ROAS whatever whatever you know um which is return on ad spend whatever acronym you want to use for every dollar venture dollar that goes in you get three out well we're just about running out of time but I wanted to end with a big question that uh no one can answer because you know that's always really fun what is your outlook for the year and beyond the year do you think do you think that we're the you know we talk a lot about whether there's a recession, whether we're already in a we're already in a recession, all that. What are your thoughts in terms of what the financial outlook is going to look like for the coming year, specifically because we've had such a crazy last three years? I mean, I'm I am not an economist, so I don't yeah, want to make sweeping <laughs> I don't want to make sweeping statements. But if you listen to earnings calls and if you look at the job market, the job market is still really tight. 
So based on those signals, I don't know if I foresee a recession, but I'm taking just a few data points to come to my conclusion. You're still continuing to see a lot of spend. Um, beauty companies are doing really, really well. And I think that's more about like the attainable luxury aspect. They probably can't afford the $8,000 Chanel bag, but they can afford a $40 Chanel lipstick. Um, so as it pertains specifically to what I do, which is early stage investing, early stage being either the first or second institutional check into a company, I think there's a lot of great opportunities. The barrier for investment will be significantly higher. The length of time from your first meeting to the funds actually being wired will also be elongated because I think VCs through the learnings of some of the fast deals that we did in late 2020, early 2021, um, we were moving through deals very, very quickly without doing a lot of diligence. (laughs) If I'm being very honest, a lot of VCs did that because the the competition was so high just to try to get into the deal. But now we've got all the time in the world. And so we will, yes, we will test your product, but we'll also do founder channel checks. And we will talk to retailers about their interest in a specific category. And we'll talk to potentially, if you had prior investors, we'll we'll talk to those investors to see if they're still bullish. Are they going to double down? Are they also going to put money in? If not, why not? So I think it's going to be harder for um, startups in in general, but um, the good ones, the ones that can grow again organically will stick around and will be better for it. Well, Diana, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you for joining. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week. Bye.